You're listening to the Lost Mountain Podcast. Lost Mountain exists to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. We hope today's message encourages you towards a deeper relationship with Christ. If you have any questions from today's message, email us at info at lmbc.us. Link is in the show notes. Good morning, everyone. It's a beautiful day outside. We've lost an hour of sleep. By show of hands, does anyone feel like they've been kicked in the face? Glad to know I am not the only one. So we are going to be continuing our message series through the book of Luke. Now, for those that are just beginning to become acclimated with Lost Mountain, we started a series through the book of Luke back in October. And so we're just now picking that back up. So I want you to go ahead and grab your Bibles and click over to chapter 3 of the book of Luke. That's where we're going to camp out and spend our time this morning. But just by way of reminder, I wanted to make us all aware of a couple of things that are going on. We have a couple of nights of prayer and worship that are coming up in anticipation for Easter. One of those is going to be next Sunday on the 19th, and the other one will be the 26th that following week. Those take place from 5 to 6 p.m., and so you will want to make arrangements to join us for those. Can I just be honest with you? Those are a really sweet time of, of prayer and worship through song for us. At, at the last one, uh, we divided into groups, and I, I don't mean to get caught up in the emotionalism of it all, but it, it was sort of a tear fest, and we had a really good and beneficial and impactful time personally and on behalf of this church praying over needs and praying over situations uh, that we just were able to vocalize out loud. And so I really encourage you guys to be a part of that if you haven't had the opportunity to do so yet. There's also going to be a serve team training event in preparation for Easter tomorrow. I want to encourage you also, even if you're not a member of Lost Mountain, Come and serve on Easter. This is a good way to get connected here into the life of Lost Mountain. So we're going to have particular avenues of service on Easter morning because we're going to be having two services. And we want everybody to be involved in that in some form or fashion because a substantial way that you could get involved here is by simply serving. If it's something as simplistic as uh, being a door greeter or setting up communion on a Sunday morning, we want to encourage you to be involved in that way. So if you have yet to jump in to a volunteer ministry or a service role here at Lost Mountain, make sure you plan to do that and join us Uh, for that serve serve team training event. It's going to be from 4 to 5 p.m. on the 26th. That's right before the night of prayer and worship takes place on the 26th from uh, 5 to 6. Now, this last announcement is actually something that's very unique. Most of us in this room are aware that formerly Lost Mountain met at the building where Mars Hill Community Church is currently at. We are actually going to be joining them in this very room for a Christ in the Passover event. And what that means is we are going to be observing a traditional Jewish Seder meal together and see how Christ fulfills that. Now, you might be thinking to me, like, Jake, come on, man. 
I'm not eating a bunch of horseradish and bitter herbs. Not about that. There will be a traditional meal that will be served. It's comprised of grilled chicken, fresh cut green beans, new red potatoes, sweet tea, all that stuff that you want. But we will be walking through the different elements of a traditional Jewish Seder meal together with Mars Hill. And so this is an opportunity for us to get to know them and for them to get to know us and to share that meal together. So if you're going to be in town during spring break, this is on Thursday, April the 6th from 6.30 to 8.30. Childcare is provided for all of these things that I'm mentioning and for five and under on that particular night because we want some older kids to be participating in that event with us. And that's $10 per person, but there's a $40 family max. So if you have a family of eight, I see you Hintons, like there's $40, that's the cap. So that registration link is going to go out uh, within the next week or so. Sign up for that if you're gonna be in the area. Okay, lots of announcements. Now, let's get to it. Uh, Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. We're going to carry it till about verse 20, but it's always good, and everybody appreciates a good Mark Twain quote. Uh, I can't even talk. Mark Twain quote. There we go, to get stuff started. Listen to this. The two most important days in your life are the day you are born and the day you find out why. And so I, I, I love uh, the comedy that you find in a lot of Twain's writings, but a lot of just basic, yeah, I've never really thought about that before. So hopefully throughout uh, today's message, which is focusing specifically on John the Baptist and his ministry, we'll get to find out why, why it is that we're actually alive. And so let's begin with reading this entire passage. It's a big chunk of scripture, but I really want to invest the time in having us uh, participate in a public reading of scripture this morning. So I'm going to read this over us. John chapter, excuse me, Luke chapter three, beginning in chapter one. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iterea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. Verse 7, John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. 
And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What shall we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Every tax collect, even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the, Tetrarch's, Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other things he had done, Herod added this to him all. He locked John up in prison. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for the consistency of your word. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to invest a time together in corporate worship this morning, learning and absorbing and hearing from your spirit that is present with us this morning. I ask, Father, that everything that we are to learn from the scriptures this morning would not fall on deaf ears, but instead be received by hearts that are eager to learn and to become more like Jesus. So open our minds to understand what it is that is to be communicated from your word today. And we pray this in Jesus' name together. Amen. The first thing I want us to realize out of this specifically is that John is not one of the powerful. Luke is writing, and we most of us know that Luke is a physician, but at the same time, Luke is very much a historian. And what he has done specifically at the beginning of chapter three, as he has set up the civil and religious order under Roman occupation, but he immediately tells us that God's word comes to John in the wilderness. So the way that things were set up, you had Caesar, you had governors, you had tetrarchs over particular areas, but it's interesting because Luke is establishing the people with notoriety of this particular time, but he goes right to John, and John is an absolute nobody. He's the son of Zechariah, which we read about in Luke chapter 1. He was born to aging parents, and we get to this place where we're kind of caught off guard a little bit because Luke is addressing these people of 
notoriety in the particular time and we get to John and it's just like, oh, okay. But it's interesting because he says the word of God comes to John and he's in the wilderness. See, there's this, there's this tendency within us to become like intoxicated with anyone of notoriety. Am I right? Particularly if they're Christians. Like if we see somebody in the news or if there is a movie star that receives uh, Jesus as their Lord and Savior, or if we drive all the way to West Monroe, Louisiana to get our picture taken in front of the duck commander, buck commander sign, you know they're Christian, right? I mean, we think that's a big deal. And what's being communicated, communicated here specifically is that God is interested in using the small folk, the people of no notoriety whatsoever. And John is in the wilderness. John has wrapped himself in camel's hair. John is ingesting a steady diet of gnawing on locust heads and wild honey. I mean, this is odd for us, but nonetheless, it says the word of God comes to John in the wilderness. Let's be reminded what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Guys, we're a room full of small people, but we serve a very big God that has demonstrated his loving kindness towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for this little person and for all of the little people that are present in this room this morning. And so that's something to pay attention to. God's word comes to John in the wilderness, and God's word has come to us. And we don't have to be intoxicated by the people of of fame and notoriety around us, even if they're believers, because God can use us. God can use you and your sphere of influence right where you are to do big things for him. Make no mistake about that. You are in a position wherever you are to be used by God in a very profound and impactful way that's not only going to change your life, but it's also going to change the lives of the other people around you. Never underestimate what God can do through you through your obedience, through your willingness to be used by him. The second thing we see is that John is strategically positioned to fulfill prophecy. You could essentially say that John is the last prophet of the Old Testament. I mean, Isaiah prophesies of him. We see that in Isaiah chapter 40, verses three through five, but it's right here for us. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways made smooth. 
What's interesting here about this wording is that when a, when a king would travel in the desert, his workmen would go before him to clear out the debris and smooth out the roads to make his journey easier once he made his way through a particular area of land to get to where he needed to go. And the way of the Messiah what John is saying is going to be made straight and smooth because through John, through his prophetic ministry, many will be prepared to receive the message of Jesus. And so John, he has a strategic position to fulfill what was prophesied about him in the 700 BCs. And right here, we're at A.D. 26, 28. So Jesus and his cousin, John the Baptist, are roughly 30 years old during this time, being so removed from what was prophesied about them in the past, but yet it's being fulfilled right in front of them. And the crowds that come out to see what John is doing in the wilderness are witnesses to this. Next, we see that John's message pierced the hearts of the crowds. Look in verse 7. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized, you brood of vipers. I love that. It wouldn't be very welcoming if Matt and I were to stand outside at the four years and welcome everybody in on a Sunday morning and be like, how you doing, you stinking snake? (laughs) Welcome to church. Hope you're comfortable while we preach condemnation and all of that. No, no, no. Like, but at the same time, there's, there's, there's a pointedness to what John is communicating. Because there's a sincerity about what's at stake. And he wants people to realize that them coming out to be baptized by him is not going to accomplish much if there isn't a true willingness for them to turn from a sinful lifestyle. And it's no different for us today. Like many people can be baptized, but it demonstrates nothing if we're not truly willing to turn from a lifestyle leading to utter destruction. We can engage in all sorts of religious activities and yet still, still have an unrepentant heart. When things are difficult to hear and receive, can we just be honest? It's it's the easy thing to make the choice for what's comfortable and familiar. It's hard for us to listen to things that are offensive to us, even if they're right. Take, for instance, this quote from Bill Hall. He wrote a book called Conversion and Discipleship. And if you ever wanted to read a book about making you uncomfortable as far as whether or not you're legitimately following Jesus, may I make, make this recommendation to you? He says, we are naturally attracted to a message of convenience. He's talking here specifically about something that particularly Americans have settled for, and it's the convenience gospel. We are naturally attracted to a message of convenience. 
What's not to like when we can get forgiveness in heaven and still run our own lives? This gospel creates disciples who shop for a church until they find one that meets their needs. And that's difficult for us to hear because some of us, maybe most of us, might have been guilty of that before at some point as we've been looking for various churches throughout the years. Like, eh, I don't like the music. They don't serve the type of coffee I like. They dress funny. They all wear suits. They all sing hymns. Whatever the case may be, like, necessarily, like, we need to come to an understanding that this isn't an opportunity for us to come into these particular types of settings and to experience something like we do in other environments. Because there are so many other things that we can go to where the primary focus is our entertainment. And I'm not necessarily communicating that those things are wrong, but we gather here on the Lord's Day to worship the risen Christ. That's why we're in this room. And we enjoy that in the fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ so that we can bear one another's burdens, so that we can pray with one another, so that we can hold each other's arms up, so that we can uh, welcome the birth of a new child, so that we can celebrate the fact that couples are getting married, so that we can mourn with those that have lost loved ones so that we can ask the Lord for deliverance for people in our midst that are battling diseases. Make no mistake about it. This time in our week is different from every other time because we're here for the worship and the exaltation of the risen Christ who has overcome sin and who has overcome death and who has invited us into a resurrection like his. And some of that, it's just the reality of the situation that we have to suffer. We have to suffer as he has suffered. And that, that falls very strangely on our ears, yet it's biblically faithful. Because it says in Hebrews that Christ himself learned obedience through what he suffered And it's difficult to say that why would it be any different for us? But we know that our suffering produces steadfastness and these things turn into hope and that will not disappoint because we are expecting something that is far greater than anything that we could ask for or imagine. And it's all found in Christ and the expectant hope that we have in him. John also emphasizes that authentic repentance produces fruit. In verse 8 right there, he says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Produce, the the idea from the original language here is, is make or yield. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And that fruit is plural. The metaphor of fruit suggests that repentance is not merely a human endeavor, but you're in cooperation with divine activity. Bill Hull says again, repentance is more than mental assent 
or response of regret or sorrow. It is intentional action to obey that is evidenced in behavior. Now, when he says repentance is more than mental assent, this is him saying that it's not just intellectual agreement, right? What he's saying is towards the latter half of the quote, it's intentional action to obey that is evidenced in a changed and changing lifestyle. What repentance is, it's a turning from something, but it's a returning to God. We are turning from sinful and habitual patterns of destruction to the living God that created us and knows what's best for us. And so in repentance, we turn from that and we flee to him. We do that initially and we do it for the remainder of our existence upon this earth. Because repentance is something that is lifelong, and we need to practice it as a lifestyle. And so that's what's communicating, that's what's being communicated there. But John's also emphasizing that authentic repentance is personal. And this is difficult for us to latch on to sometimes because being a member of the nation of Israel could not save these people just like our association with a friend or a family member who is a legitimate follower of Jesus cannot save us. We can't rely on the faith of a devout grandparent. We can't rely on the faith of a friend or a family member. This is personal. And we have to come to the realization that we have to have an encounter with the living God that is personal, and we come to the realization that we have fallen desperately short of what He requires. And so there's no reliance on a former uh, family member that has since gone on that was a, a big influence in our lives. We can't rely on friendships. We can't rely on family. This is a personal matter. Authentic repentance happens within the person. And John also warns the crowd that the proof of sincere repentance is in abandoning patterns of sin. Look at verses 10 through 14. The crowds come to him and they say, what should we do? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they said, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Listen to this from the Westminster Confession of Faith. Men ought not to content themselves with a general repentance, but it's every man's duty to endeavor to repent of his particular sins particularly. It's very interesting because it's communicating that each and every one of us in this room have a particular bent towards 
a particular sin. There are some things that I struggle with that others in this room do not struggle with. There are some things that you struggle with that eat at you that the person sitting next to you might not struggle with. And this is another opportunity for us in environments like this to hold up one another's arms and encourage one another and to pray for one another specifically because we all struggle with uh, an inclination towards things that are destructive to us. And it does us no good to say, well, it, uh, at least I don't struggle with what that guy or that gal has. That's not what it's about. What it's about is encouraging one another toward godliness into living a lifestyle that is worthy of the calling that we've received. So every one of us has an inclination toward a particular sin or sins. And John is pointing out that whatever our particular bent is, it needs to be replaced by generosity, honesty, and contentment. Can we just be honest? A lot uh, of our problems... And a lot of the things that um, constantly eat at us could be done away with if we had a, a healthy fix on these things being replaced with generosity, honesty, and contentment. We see in verses 15 and 17 that John knows his position. John could only call people to repentance. He could only immerse them in water by baptizing them but he's aware of who he is before the promised Messiah, the one who will come and the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John recognizes he isn't even worthy to perform a slave's task by untying the straps of Jesus' sandals. He knows his position. In John 3.30, he says himself, he must become greater and I must become less. That's a question for us this morning. Do we know our position before Christ? Does that matter to us? Does it matter that we know that we're unworthy to stoop and to untie the straps of his sandals? Are there moments in our our day-to-day devotion to Christ where we're, if we're physically able, we can kneel down or, or we can lay on the floor and we can acknowledge that He is Lord of our lives and we understand our position before Him. We understand that everything that we could possibly offer is abhorrent to a holy and righteous God. But he has so made a way for us to be reconciled to him that he sent his son to suffer an excruciating death upon a Roman cross and absorb the complete and total wrath of God. And sometimes I don't, I don't think it clicks in our minds that he became the sin that we struggle with. As I mentioned before, some of us have a particular bent towards particular sins. 
You understand that Jesus became those things on the cross on your behalf. It's not a wonder for me in the slightest that he cries out to God and says, why have you forsaken me? I mean, he became these things in order to absorb the complete and total wrath of God so that we might experience life in the richest abundance and we might be set free from those things to live a life of repentance and obedience. And this is the life that he calls you and I to. And we can do it with the indwelling Holy Spirit. We can cast aside those particular sins that we struggle with. And we can walk in obedience and we can walk in lifestyle repentance. And we can make the choice of daily dying to ourselves so that the people that we come in contact with might understand that there's something different about us. And they might begin to question as to the reason for the hope that they see in us. If we learned anything from the former series that we just came out of, we have to be known by our love for other people. And the only way that we can experience that love is if we have an understanding of the love that was demonstrated to us through Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. And so let's move on to verse 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So John's original audience would understand what this was all about, right? Because every one of them had done this at some point in their life. Uh, A winnowing tool or a winnowing fork, they would stick into a pile of wheat and they would toss it up in the air and the chaff would be driven away by the wind, but the grain would fall to the ground because it had some substance and some weight to it. It's the only thing about that whole process that was useful. And the grain would be gathered into the barns, and the chaff that would remain would either float away on the wind or it would be devoted to the fire to be burned away with because it was not useful. You get the picture here. Are you weight that has some substance to it? Are you equipped with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have you submitted your life fully to that so that you could be placed into the barn with proper use? I'm reminded of Psalm 1, where it says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit and its season and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. But the wicked are not so. They're like chaff 
which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Finally, in verses 15 and 17, Going back to that, John knows his position, but John also recognizes that he isn't, oops, I went to my nose here, sorry about that. Yeah. Christ plunges the winnowing shovel of the gospel into the world and the wheat of faith is collected while the chaff of unbelief gets burned away in condemnation. And finally, in verses 18 through 20, John John simply proclaims the good news. The good news that John is proclaiming isn't good news because it's nice. It's good news because it's the truth. If you would, for a second, go over to Isaiah chapter 30. And if ever there was an Old Testament prophecy that's descriptive of the time that we currently find ourselves in, I I think this would rank up there close to the top. He's prophesying against an obstinate nation, and he says, for these are rebellious people, deceitful children, children unwilling to listen to the Lord's instruction. They say to seers, see no more vision and to prophets, give us no more visions of what is right. Tell us pleasant things. Prophesy illusions. Leave this way, get off this path, and stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. Sometimes our message isn't one that is popular and that people want to hear. And that's okay because we are entrusting the details to God himself. We are the faithful messengers who have the message of reconciliation for those that God has prepared in advance to receive it. You continue being obedient. You continue speaking into the lives of individuals of what you have seen and heard and what has transformed your life in such a way to where you can never go back to the things that you formerly messed around in. And I'm not saying that it's, it's not a struggle because while John proclaimed the good news, John's ministry lasted no more than three years about one year out of prison and two years in prison. Can you imagine how discouraging that might have been for John? Like he was in the wilderness, but as we see back in verses 18 through 20, and with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. 
And so Jesus begins fulfilling the ministry that God had called him to. But yet in Matthew chapter 11, verses two and three, we see that when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? In that moment, John was deeply discouraged because he thought things were going to look a lot differently for him. But nonetheless, Jesus sent John's disciples back to him and said to him, look, the the blind are receiving sight. The lame are walking. Everything that you prophesied in advance about my coming is being fulfilled. And you can rest even though you're in an uncomfortable environment and in an uncomfortable position, I'll take this from here. And so we can draw encouragement from that. In that moments of deep discouragement, we can understand that Jesus has gone before us and fulfilled everything that he has needed to do to secure our standing before the righteous and holy creator and sustainer of all things. Be encouraged by that today. If you are in Christ today, God is for you and he is not against you. God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God in him. So my question for us today, in the midst of all these words that start with a P, has there been a profession Has there been a public acknowledgement in your life before a friend, a family member, a church where you've come to the realization that I truly need to repent from my sins because I've just been wallowing in this lifestyle and I've been playing a game that has gotten me nowhere. If you have a second, would you grab your connection card? I just want us to see something. On the back of it, that very top box that says next steps, it says, today I became a follower of Christ. I want you to take a pen and I want you to underline or circle follower. And this is just as a demonstration that our commitment to Christ is so much more than a decision that happened whenever it happened. A follower of Jesus implies that you are structuring your life under his lordship and you want to live like he lived. You're no longer interested in self-promotion. You're no longer interested in what you can get out of a church service. You're no longer interested 
in the things of this world that grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So I want you to look at that connection card and I want you to ask yourself the question, am I following Jesus? If he has made all the difference in the world to you, are you following him? And this is a question that I've had to grapple with this week myself. I mean, am I legitimately following him? with everything that I have because he is all that I have and he's all that I need. And so if that's you today, if that's you, and you can honestly say to yourself, that's not me. I mean, you can check that box. But I would venture to say that most of us in here have been following Jesus for a long time but maybe not as we should have been. And so maybe you need to look at that underlined word or that circled word and say, yeah, today needs to be a turning point in my life specifically. And I need to be serious about some things, about how I need to orchestrate the remainder of my days on this earth to follow Jesus with everything that I have and with everything that I am. Because I can't help but speak of the things that I've seen and that I've heard. And so I'm gonna pray for us. But before I do, let's heed the words of Christ himself from Mark Chapter one, verse 15. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Believe the good news that Jesus, has entered in to the predicament that we find ourselves in and was the substitutionary atonement for our sins. And so allow me to pray to close this out. Father in heaven, help us to realize that there is a lot at stake with our own personal lives. That if we made a decision that's had no bearing on our lives whatsoever, that's cause for concern. Help us to understand that legitimately following your son Jesus himself requires everything. And you have given us grace and you have given us mercy. And we are truly thankful for these things, but you have called us to follow you. 
to get rid of our selfish desires, to get rid of our autonomy, to get rid of thinking that we can do this without any of your help. So wake us up to some things that we need to be awoken to. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. For more information about Lost Mountain, visit us at lmbc.us. Thank you for tuning in today.